Hi, my name is James Heathers. I am a research scientist at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My pet peeve about science and more specifically science reporting in general is when people misunderstand clinical laboratory research and think that it is something that is ready to treat human beings. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist in Big Mouth, and I'm still full from Thanksgiving. Don't forget to tell your friends to check out the show. We've got a pretty active blog as well over at woodstockvitamins.com, just in case you're not getting enough of me already. Today's feature conversation is Dr. James Heathers. As James states on his homepage, he's a scientist, author, and scallywag. Dr. Heathers is a research scientist, author, and consultant. He's posted up currently at Northeastern University in Boston in their computational behavioral science lab. So I was looking for somebody to help give my listeners some insight on research and on science and on studies, and James is the guy. So we live in a world now where there's everything at our fingertips and we try to do our best research and inform ourselves to make better decisions. The problem is it really takes extensive training to get research right. For me, dissecting research and determining if the data was legitimate or not was a big part of our pharmacy school curriculum and it ran parallel to all the drug information. So it was a constant exposure to this. And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that even for me, it's pretty complicated. Uh, I'm not that smart, but I mean, it's also pretty complicated despite all the training. James and I are going to talk about some common concepts around research that may get lost in translation, if you will. And we'll teach you what to look out for when reading the scientific media headlines and the stories that show up in our social world. Enjoy. So what is one thing that you think most lay people should know about research? Oh, Neil, I only get one thing. <laughs> Man, harsh. No, I'm, okay, look, if I get to if I get to confine myself to one thing. Well, how about this? We can do the BuzzFeed like list ten things <laughs> that everybody should know about research, and it's a bunch of oh, no, yes, no, yeah. No. I've got to come up with ten things. <laughs> Oh, it's just, well, we'll 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 get to most of them. Believe me, I got I got peeves for days, man. I'm I'm a very much a peeve centric life I'm living over here. Um, I, I tell you what, I can't I can't confine it to one thing though. Mm-hmm. Everything that you read that is a, a conclusion in a newspaper or a press release, if you read that kind of website, or something that someone tells you about a study, mm-hmm. all of those are lines in a broader conversation and not actually conclusions. Right. So when you see the study that says, ah, it turns out the ketogenic diet is better for cardiovascular health, that has an animal model, potentially, uh, a context. Uh, It has its own sort of study parameters internally. So it may or may not be a good study. It may or may not be relevant. It may be in older or younger people or animals. It may be in a certain strain of animals. It may be really representative. It may be terrible. So the broader interpretation of that is not something that ever lets you jump to conclusions. And it's always presented as if... I I often think people report scientific studies uh, in the same way that you'd report like... uh, Someone finally climbs Mount Everest, full stop. A conclusion has been reached. Uh, A dude in a woolly parka was standing on a place we can definitively prove he was there. Now we're done, full stop, end of story. Right. And it's not like that at all. Um, It's just something that interferes with our kind of binary desire to understand whether or not things are good or bad, especially whether or not something's healthy or not. None of uh, none none of that is appropriate. Um, so a lot a lot of the time it's really hard. It's even hard for other scientists sometimes to say is this study good or bad? Uh, is this something that I need to pay attention to either for my research or for my own life? Yes or no. 
Uh, round in circles we go. Right. I mean, that's that's not a very positive message. Where you go, hey, you know how science is hard? Yes. Well, it's harder than you think. <laughs> Great. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> where does that leave me, the science-interested consumer? Right. Um, man, that's a lot of the time I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, lay people have the tendency to try to simplify everything. And one of the things that I think is most important for them to know, if I if I had asked myself that same question, I would say it's like there's a lot of garbage out there, which is probably what you're kind of saying. There's a lot of not only bad science, like you were uh, hinting at, but then there's a lot of good science that's being misreported. So it's like finding a needle in a haystack. And that needle isn't really representative of much of anything except for that, like, the fact that it's a needle. And, you know, a lot of our training as pharmacists, for example, is in like discerning all the BS around the data, you know, to, to figure out the bias and the methodology and the statistics and what lie are they telling. So I think that, you know, for scientists, for people that are trained in the study of science, it is extremely difficult. And, and most of the work is in kind of parsing through all of that data. So, so let's kind of talk about I don't know. You, you know, you like to call it out as it is. So it's like, let's talk about all the tricks that these guys can pull on people. So that way they can kind of be on the lookout, I guess. What are some things that researchers do to kind of bend the truth? And, and you know, you can even bring in the media because those are kind of two components there. Oh, man. Well, that's a that's a very deep saddlebag, that one. So let's let's p- pick a few things out that you might have the uh, the actual hope of being able to interpret yourself, which is which is always a difficult thing when you've got a news story to go on. Right. Why don't we start with something that is a, a, a particular annoyance of mine in a background of other annoyances, which is let's let's say we're let's say we're doing a study on a dietary supplement. That's a great and topic. We, we we wanted to. Oh, I thought you'd like that one. Um, well, let's let's hyper, hypothetical dietary supplement. And if I pick one, someone will get angry at me. So let's keep it hypothetical. Yeah. Now let's say that we study that in a reasonably sized group of people, big enough at least, mm-hmm. and we study it for an appropriate length of time. And then we have a series of basic health parameters, or cardiovascular parameters, or just vascular parameters, or activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. If we split all of those into functional tests and blood tests and things that we can calculate from those being combined, I'd give people an echocardiogram, measure their triglycerides, their A1C. Like objective measures is what we refer them as, right? Cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of objective measures. Mm-hmm. Now, purely by chance, because... There, there are an awful lot of biases that creep in. Some things work, some things don't. But in general, people are very poorly controlled experimental subjects. So let's say purely by circumstance, one of those changes, and I've measured 20. I am mm-hmm. under no scientific obligation to tell you about the 20 things that didn't change. Right. Right? So let's just take, uh, let's ju- let's just take uh, triglycerides and HDL and LDL uh, cholesterol. Mm -hmm. We would expect if you were exercising and eating the right things, et cetera, et cetera, and your fancy supplement is helping you on top of that, that HDL would probably go up, LDL would probably go down, and triglycerides would go down as well. Right. Now, let's say there's absolutely no change whatsoever in the cholesterol, but the triglycerides go down just enough to be statistically significant, Mm -hmm. which is another peeve we won't get into right right now. I am under no obligation as a scientist to tell you a damn thing about the measures that don't work. I can confine myself to telling you a really interesting story about the measures that do. And there's a thousand ways to combine these uh, found and lost variables together to make an interesting narrative about a study. Right. Like now let's subprime let's mortgages. complicate that a bit. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's complicate that uh, complicate that a little and get to another piece. Say I'm a lab without much money at a regional university uh, who meets the National Snozberry Council mm-hmm. and they say I'm really interested in having a 
uh, randomized control study done on my snozberry extract. Uh, that's from Willy Wonka. So um, mm-hmm. uh, you got no one, no one who's a, no no agribusiness is going to get angry at me at this point. So I'm interested in you giving this supplement to people, and then I'm very interested in you finding out why it's healthy because we have all these reasons to believe it's healthy, etc. Now there's no that no one walks into that meeting from the Snosbury Council telling scientists what to find banging the table and pointing at them with a middle finger and going, listen, you better find out. If I'm going to give you a bunch of money to run a study, you better find something useful. Well, they're already looking for something useful. They wouldn't talk to them in the first place if they weren't interested in getting it off the ground, mm-hmm. right? So you run that study. You find your one change in triglycerides. Um, maybe you report some of the variables where your observations didn't give you something that was allegedly meaningful to report. You just report the thing that worked. Now, the Snosbury Council is happy because there's a study and a ton of media attention about how Snosburys are going to lower your triglycerides. You get to write a paper about it. Uh, you have enough money to keep your lab going. Right. And the world continues to turn. Now, that's a very that 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 leaves out a lot of details in the individual steps but that is a lot of individual studies right that is a lot of results that make it especially into health reporting sorts of literature um there's nothing that's quite as big i mean there's there's an awful lot of science going on in the world and health and wellness stuff is disproportionately reported compared to everything else there's no articles in the new york times about advances in material science <laughs> um no no one's no one's interested in uh, the the sort of uh, research into the cosmological constants unless there's cool pictures of a black hole now that was very cool very but cool. i mean that's one very small part of a very large research area. No one's reporting on pure mathematics. People are only occasionally reporting on ecology, um, sociology, criminology. Uh, a lot of the time they don't make it to the newspaper, but we're all very interested in what's going to kill us next Tuesday. Right. So, Are eggs going to murder us in our sleep? Yeah. Well, there's a, a, a while back... Neil, I found something, there was something that was very, very funny that happened. There were two studies published, I think within, oh, it might have been within two weeks of each other. And the first one was reported. I mean, they were both obviously highly qualified. One was about, um, from memory, the, the health effects of eggs in, I think it was elderly Chinese men. Mm. So, you know, you've got a sex, you've got a, a context. Yep. Uh, you've got a culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they eat, have a, a completely different diet to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you have other extraneous factors. Uh, what's the air pollution like? How did they grow up? What was their nutrition like in their childhood? On and on it goes. Um, and the other one was in, uh, I, I think it was from the UK, but it doesn't really matter. It was in a completely dissimilar population of people. Different place, different age, different. Uh, I think it was a mixed uh, mixed sex study. I think it was just everyone they could find. Mm-hmm. Now they were reported right next to each other, and uh, I don't think there was anything really wrong with either of the studies, except they were reported as first of all uh, eggs are good, and then they went back to being bad again. <laughs> I mean, Lewis Black used to have jokes about this fifteen years ago. You know, <laughs> yes. son of a bitch, I just ate the eggs. <laughs> um, we're, we're we're still doing it. Um, and by by we, I mean there's a responsibility that's conferred on everyone in this chain when it comes to how overheated this stuff can get. And that's people who fund studies, which is government bodies and uh, private uh, private charities and nonprofits and philanthropists and scientists and media press offices and scientific journals and journalists. Uh, the only the only people you can't really blame is consumers because I mean they they have an interest. It's just that everyone else is uh, writing the story. Everyone else is serving them information that they can't use. Right. They're, they're the only sort of blameless, curious people in the whole process. I mean, you can say everyone change your media consumption habits and stop rewarding media outlets that uh, continually change their mind about eggs. But I mean, that's <laughs> that's a vain hope. Yeah. People, people are curious. They're going to be how they are. Right. And 
Yeah, the, the, the environment that we've built for reporting information like that, as much as people continually bemoan it, also continually refuses to change. Well, because it works. Um, if if you, I, I did an article about fluoride. Uh, how dare I, right? So I was talking about fluoride and about how the the issue is basically muddled between the uh, government putting stuff in my water and how dare they and fluoride helps teeth. And I teach people that you can be upset about the government stuff, but the science is very firm about the benefits of fluoride and, and the very low risk when you're using it personally and not drinking this stuff, right? So, you know, like, I mean, swallowing the toothpaste. So, uh, you know, instantly, three people sent me a study that was released um, and it tied uh, fluoride to lower intelligence in young boys. The mom using fluoride and it was related. And I was just thinking to myself, like I looked at the study, the study was garbage, of course, but like the media outlets were probably chomping at the bit to produce that and get that out there and use the headlines that they did because you know that that study is going to get lots of attention. Um, and it's how negative information travels way faster than positive information. But it's like, you know, the, the purpose of the media, instead of reporting the truth, has become more uh, serving uh, the, the desires of the consumers that are reading it. So it's less providing the news and it's more uh, marketing, I guess. And that, that does not help the arguments that we have about the scientific media distorting these laboratory tests that are just like one-offs flash in the pan. Yeah, I actually... I actually remember that study. Yeah. Um, I would refer you immediately to my previous remark about how that's one line in an ongoing conversation. And the one about fluoride is uh, 60, 70, 80 years old. I mean, they started yeah. fluoridation in America in right after the war, right. I think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're middle-aged, it's as old as your parents. Mm -hmm. Um if it was so, my perspective on something like that's reasonably straightforward. Is if it was a really serious problem, we would have picked it up by now. It would have been the same as lead and heavy metals. Mm -hmm. It would have been uh, it, it would have been a very serious conversation that would have started before a, a bunch of random researchers in Canada suddenly discovered that uh, this affects boys and somehow not girls at the same time. There's no mechanism for that. It's physically impossible. You publish that and you say, well, I don't have the I, I don't have a first idea where it's from. We don't know how it could possibly work. Um, and in an epidemiological study, it's very likely to be a false positive. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that was in a JAMA journal and I've published in a JAMA journal and they're quite strict with the internal quality of the study, but that doesn't stop a false positive from being a false positive. Mm -hmm. And no amount of review can take away uh, any, any of the other variables that you either neglected to mention or hid. I'm not saying these researchers did that, it's just that it's common. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, w when I read a study like that, I don't have the slightest flash of anxiety. Right. It's it's in it's in but I, and I mean before I actually go and read the study because that's the kind of thing I do. I work in meta science, so when something like that happens, I, I get interested. But even even if I'm not going to read the study, it doesn't give me the slightest kind of pause for concern. Yeah, and it shouldn't. And that and that's just it. It just. It if you think about it, you were taking this and we're turning them into beliefs. We're turning them into emotion-based things when they really should not be. They should be kept very, very uh, data-oriented, very scientific. We're just looking at the results of this thing and understanding that when we're doing a study, we're really looking at a very, we're trying to control as much as we possibly can. And that's not necessarily reflective on, on real life. Let's talk about something actually, which kind of around the fluoride thing, right? The idea that people feel that the larger institutions are not to be trusted because of their corruption. And so specifically, like we can talk to that. So the idea that, oh, the FDA is hiding the information that fluoride or 5G wireless or whatever the new thing is, is harmful to us because we they make money on whatever. Um, so we can talk to the the likelihood of that being real and the instances where that has happened. But then also like the idea that, yeah, everything's corrupt in, in data and research, right? There's always some sort of, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but the idea that just because the FDA is corrupt doesn't mean that everybody else isn't. 
you know? So why don't you talk about the idea that people don't trust these major institutions that are responsible for reviewing the research that's out there and making the research happen? Well, that's one of the reasons I do work that's in meta-science, because if you're within the scientific tent and you kick it really hard and you try and find out where the distrustworthy people are and where the problems are and you tell everyone about the problems and you expect them to get solved and you make a lot of noise, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that is one of the best things that you can do when it comes to gaining trust. This is being, there is oversight, even if it's casual oversight, where some dude in his pajamas sitting on the couch reading studies in the middle of the night. At mm-hmm. least, I mean, they're, they're getting read, right? right? Mm-hmm. So the, this look, there's not a whole lot of formal scientific oversight in a lot of places. Yeah. And the thing that keeps the lights on everywhere is that the vast majority of scientists really, even people who are in them, the people I was talking about before who are studying the snozberries, mm-hmm. the vast majority of them really are trying to do their jobs correctly. And if there was ever any suppression of what they're trying to do, a lot of them are not particular. <laughs> a lot of them are not particularly well disposed to being suppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very difficult thing to do because we have an extremely strong culture over a very long period of time of having the freedom to make academic statements, mm-hmm. and that's something that's protected within universities, and most of the time is pro- is protected in the broadest sense. There's not a lot that can actually stop you from saying your piece. And when you have a really large scientific consensus that involves thousands or millions of individual people who are within a research area, mm-hmm. that has been extremely well battle-tested. Right. One of the things that people don't get in general is just how much individual thought and work has gone into a consensus like that and it's impossible to it's impossible to do on the basis of hey if we all say this we'll make more money if we suppress that we'll make more money mm-hmm. the problem with that is an incentive immediately arises for someone else to tell the truth and then become really famous on the back of it scientists make terrible conspirators in general i love <laughs> the idea of a scientific conspiracy a lot of scientists don't agree on the stuff that they actually agree about it's like, we agree on these three things. Well, they won't agree on the order, what's most important. Mm-hmm. Um, we both research the same stuff. Our research, My research supports yours, your research supports mine. Yeah, but I don't like the way you did it. It's a very, very critical culture. Mm-hmm. And if you find a huge problem with someone else's research, you can get a hell of famous on the back of pointing that out. Right, being the loud voice, the big mouth scientist. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a way in a very sort of uh, uh, aggressively career-driven kind of area. Like being a contrarian who turns out to be right can be an amazing <laughs> career move. So <laughs> the the idea that everyone's going to get together and plan something where information is suppressed is so totally unworkable on kind of a process level. It makes it pretty funny. I, I've uh, I got a friend who wrote a modeling paper on how difficult it would be to maintain a proper scientific conspiracy. Really? And I don't know if you have show notes or anything like uh, anything like that. Yeah. But this is um this might be a little bit heavy going. I know. Send it my way after. Yeah, I want to hear it. I want to read yeah. it. Yeah. Um. What he tried to do was was estimate how many people would need to know the truth for for this particular um for this particular conspiracy to thrive? How many people would have to know and then suppress the real knowledge? And for most, uh, like cancer cures, uh, vaccines, climate change, the moon landing, uh, other stuff. Well, he's not advancing an opinion on that. Just if we were going to control the information, how many people would have to know? Mm-hmm. Um and the amount of people, and this is modeling from a mathematical perspective, is of sort of moderate complexity, sufficient that most people can read it and go, "Oh yeah, okay, let's uh, let's let's look at that." That's that's reasonably straightforward. Um, so it's not it's not particularly difficult to read. But the, the 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 amount of the amount of people that would need to be employed by NASA at the kind of peak in the '60s to understand 
how it would all fit together is in the hundreds of thousands. So it's really hard to get hundreds of thousands of scientists to keep a secret. Right. Um, and the, the thing that informs the modeling best of all is the fact that there are shady plots that have happened, right? Mm-hmm. And they have eventually been cracked open and everyone's found out. So the, the, the three that he used, I hope I'm remembering this right, was the NSA, the PRISM project, which is the, like the mass surveillance project that yep. was um, uh, exposed a few years back. Snowden. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which is a very famous uh, e- example in bioethics is something that you should never, ever do because it's genuinely horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an observational study um, in the 30s. I mean, yeah, they did, mass communication was completely different back then. Where they'd, uh, they'd, they had a, eventually, they realized they had an effective treatment and they didn't give it to the people who were affected, right? Um, so that's genuinely unpleasant. And the recent problem with uh, forensic evidence um, for, I think it was hair analysis or bite mark analysis or something, which is, had a very, very poor scientific basis, but was used to decide a lot of court cases. Now, those things were eventually exposed and known widely. And, I mean, even with the, the forensics thing, there were a few hundred people involved who really had the skinny on the information inside that, and I think it got about five years. And then eventually the whole thing was blown wide open. Mm-hmm. So the idea that hundreds of thousands of people can suppress information that's really pertinent to kind of public life for a period of 50 years or so is so totally unworkable that is, if you look at the whole thing rationally, you have no, no emotional stake in any of, any of this. It's, uh, you, can, you can calculate the failure time of like, how long it would take for something like that to be, uh, to be exposed. And I think the, the, the failure time for the moon landing thing was about three years. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> right. we, we would have had Nixon on the television telling us about it right. if, uh, if something like that had happened. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's something that people don't generally talk about when it comes to, uh, like, information's being massively suppressed by scientists. So just how impossible that would be to do. Right. And if you've ever dealt with a government department in great detail, just how difficult they would find it. Um, the, yeah. the idea that there's some fluid, uh, well-organized machine that's, uh, that, that, that's out there controlling the information between parties is... Um, no, these systems are entirely full of human beings who make mistakes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The first court case, they would have accidentally sent the wrong documents. The whole thing would have been blown wide open. Um, <laughs> I've often told people, like any anyone who's dealt with uh, grant-giving organizations within the government could n- never believe in a conspiracy because they don't think anything could be that well organized. Right, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> as I'm thinking through what you're saying here, I'm you know trying to be the the other side of the argument where I know my oh, consumers my consumers would say, well, there was this uh, evidence that the uh, non-steroidal drugs were causing heart attacks. Vioxx is the the drug that comes to mind. So it was an anti-inflammatory drug like Advil Aleve with a, a new mechanism, COX-2 inhib- inhibition. So it didn't have the same risks of kidney and GI upset, um, but it was hurting people it was causing heart problems heart disease heart attacks those kinds of things yeah and that data was technically suppressed and it eventually came but the thing that you're you're saying is that it can be suppressed but not for very long well how long was Vioxx on the market i mean that was a merc drug right yeah uh, that's right they mm-hmm. they withdrew it themselves at some point in time yeah once there was more post-release clinical data got it then there was more you know incidents of it and then they looked into it and then they found that the data was being suppressed and there are you know numbers of those that have come up over the years the idea that um so and then the other side of things the idea that a lot of people don't trust generic drugs i think has its uh basis in Synthroid. Synthroid uh, is mm. uh, thyroid a hormone. brand like levothyroxine, thyroid hormone, and it is uh, was one of the first to have a generic. And I believe that they manufactured data to show that the generics weren't equivalent to it. And as a result, most of us don't trust generics. We believe that they are going to be weaker. And that's persisted because of the strength of that argument uh, way back when. So, like, I, I understand what you're saying. It's very difficult to, you know, make a conspiracy real. Uh, but I do believe that 
people are are right to feel that uh, a distrust. Um, and I guess more to the point is like, it's fine to distrust stuff and say, listen, I don't believe everything that this group says carte blanche, but then the, the reflex for them is to then believe utter nonsense. Um, so a lot of people will say, I don't trust the FDA. I want these natural products. And we talked about snozberries. I like to pick fights. So like we can pick an, any supplement that we want that has no data to support its use or, or bad data to support its use. And we can talk about it. But the idea that's like, I don't trust the FDA, but I'll use salt palmetto for my prostate health you know, or I'll use this herb for flu prevention, right? And it's based on nothing, no scientific evidence. Any of the evidence is clearly biased by the manufacturer or by a group that was paid by the manufacturer. So it's it's almost like trying to address, it's such a complex issue to unpack here, all of this research stuff. We have all of the garbage that you've kind of pointed out, all of the biases, the idea of coordination of information, the the way that people get paid here, as, as you mentioned, like, it's it's somebody's got to pay the bills, right? And everybody at the end of the day just wants to keep their labs open, right? And mm-hmm. and and then we have the consumers and the media too trying to make sense of it all. So it's like, what do we tell people? <laughs> what do we tell people to do when they see the new study that comes out that says eggs are going to kill you again? Man, if I if I had a if I had a simple answer to that, I would have written a popular press book by now, and uh, all you're listening to this would have heard of me. Um, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have come on. That's fun. No, look, I, I, I take I take every uh, every podcast request that I can get because yeah. I I enjoy this. Yeah. Um, probably why you do it yourself. Me too. Um, I mean, you you just chose saw palmetto out of the air just then, right? I, I just wrote a, a book, a, a, a book, a, a bunch of articles about it. So that's what, it's just top of mind for me. I could have said cranberry. I could have okay. said anything. But I, yeah. So you're probably well aware they had a bunch of trouble with uh, toxin and heavy metal contamination in that supplement in particular a few years back? Oh, yeah. I mean, any botanical, I try to beat people over the head with the idea that you're going to have some horrible stuff in there. Um, the one thing I was uh, talking about in my article was they've come up with a new way to adulterate the substance by using animal fats because the fatty acid profile of like sheep fat matches the fatty acid profile of the salt palmetto berry. Yep. So imagine being a vegetable vegetarian yep you're having a fake contaminated subs uh, fake contaminated supplement that also happens to have accompanying animal fat right yeah it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like a vegan's nightmare for sure sh- yeah yeah look um it's exactly the same as putting melamine into milk because it ends up with the same nitrogen profile as actual milk so right. you can put in melamine water and some milk uh and then it, it comes up you, you put it through a, a gcms or something which is a, a analytical method of determining what's in something uh, to cut a very long story short and right. uh it shows up the same so i mean the the i i assume the first thing that you tell someone in a situation like that is basically a supplement manufacturing oversight is reasonably non-existent i mean mm-hmm. you have to adulterate them with drugs and have that be a problem for it to really be investigated mm-hmm. um you can't uh, adulterate it with anything that's like acutely problematic. Like, no one's going to find uh, like a high dosage of, of sodium cyanide in their fish oil. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, it's uh, food food adulteration and fraud when it when it comes to like the the identity of something, where it's from, what it means. Like, is it actually cold pressed? Uh, does is, does this actually have a regulated amount of the uh, bioactive substance from this supplement that is contained in the packaging. Uh, it, it's it's so poorly regulated as to constitute almost no regulation at all. Mm-hmm. So the regulation obviously can go wrong, uh, and there's lots of drawbacks to it. Like uh, like you said, I mean, in the 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 Viox case, that actually I'm something of a, a student of uh, scientific misconduct Mm. and there was a researcher from he was here in boston actually Mm -hmm. anyway his name was scott rubin and he did a bunch of studies that were just sort of faked up from uh one of the few scientists to ever go to prison for doing uh research fraud um and one of his studies was on 
Viox. One of the original uh, studies was on Viox. I think there were a number of other uh, studies as well, but I can't remember what they were about. So things like that can sneak through. Pharmaceutical companies can do sneaky things, but it is actually a lot easier to just have the damn thing work in the first place. I mean, <laughs> it, it becomes a it becomes a, a hurdle that you have to cross, mm-hmm. and we 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 end up in perpetual discussions about whether or not something's uh, toxic or harmful or problematic. But there's there's an enormous amount of frontline drugs that go into this kind of well, that's just that's just accepted wisdom. That doesn't count. Hey, we had to make decisions about things that became accepted wisdom too. Yeah. So L L thyroxine, mm-hmm. beta blockers, mm-hmm. uh, aspirin, mm-hmm. all all of these things have been very, very well studied and we've come to the conclusion that we're safe. So it's not like it's impossible. It's just easier with things that we discovered a while ago or things that have really clear mechanisms of action or things that are sufficiently cheap and generic and and affect a lot of internal functions that there's lots of reasons to study it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of reasons to study thyroid hormone because it does a ton of stuff. Yes. Um. So, I mean, obviously there's regulatory failures. There's lots of regulatory failures. The story that people might not normally get is how many things are developed that never have the chance to make a regulatory failure in the first place. That's the vast majority of drugs that are discovered. They never make it out of trials because they don't show any promise in the first instance. Drugs that fail on the market are comparatively rare. And they're certainly super rare compared to um, drugs that fail at the very first hurdle. Right. Yeah, and that's a, a context, I guess, and perspective is important to understand that the drugs that do make it to the light of day have been, you know, weeded out over what is it, ten to seventeen years now? Uh, long cycle. Yeah. Uh, you know, to to be researched to come to market. Um, so. The, the one thing I want to touch on that you touched on a minute as a can of worms or a pet peeve is statistically significant. I think that's an important thing for lay people to hear, too. <laughs> Let's talk about that BS. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, man, I, I, I do not want to record. I can just hear your listeners like, dropping out of car seats and falling off chairs and spilling their tea as we start <laughs> to get into the concept of statistical significance. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Every t- every time every time you hear that, I think it's a, let's let's figure out the easiest way to say this without boring people into to one death. early yeah, grave. Please don't kill people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I will do my very best. All right. Appreciate. It. When we when we use traditional statistics, and I mean the statistics that are mm, I, I, about a hundred years old, sometimes a little uh, uh, a little less than that. Um, in statistical hypothesis testing, um, actually, I'm going to, because every time I say anything about this, there's always someone out there who's incredibly sharp-eyed who yell at me if I get it wrong. So I'm going to read out the <laughs> Wikipedia definition. Here we go. And if this is wrong, you can yell at Wikipedia. Okay, the p-value is the probability of obtaining test results as least as extreme as the results observed in the test, assuming that the null hypothesis is correct. Yeah, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, you see, and that's this—that's the simplest thing that I can read out without uh, <laughs> without, <laughs> without opening myself up to uh, without opening myself up to horrible abuse from statisticians. Let's not get into the transpose conditional fallacy. <laughs> Basi- basically, it is—it is supposed to be akin to, it isn't really a a kind of a, a surprise factor, right? It's a related related to. How the re- related to though this is the way that it's it's incorrectly explained, but it, that's necessary to explain where the significance barrier came from. Wow, I haven't had to explain this out loud for a while. I haven't taught this since uh, a couple of years ago. Um, basically, in in this surprise factor value, we have a point that is uh, set at five percent, um, and the the way that it's interpreted poorly and wrongly but is interpreted is to say if i studied something that had absolutely no effect how surprising would this result be and the p equals 0.05 barrier is actually kind of a historical misnomer it was never supposed to be a barrier 
So if you read the, 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 the guy who came up with the idea, was a, a guy, Madron Fisher from the 30s. Um, he originally said that, that uh, this particular statistical barrier that a scientific result needed to clear, um, it, the, the, the thing that you test should rarely fail to give that, as in that was supposed to be a lower bound for something that was continually successful. Mm-hmm. And it's a figure that he just sort of made up. Right. It's not from, it's not from a, it, it's not derived from anything. It's what felt like a good rule of thumb to a dude who wore a waistcoat. Mm-hmm. So, from there, it has metastasized into the kind of gold standard for scientific evidence for which it has absolutely no business acting. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when we talk about strength of evidence, there's, um, there's far better approaches. Um, some of them are not more broadly understood. Um, and some of them are just, just because the whole sort of area has been captured by this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's this there's this perception that it's never really going to go away, so we might as well just get with the program and do our last statistics reporting this really silly value. Right. Um, I've had to do it from time to time. I leave out statements of significance and things that I've written, and journal editors have told me to put them back in. And I go, well, can we have an argument about how that's a silly idea? Mm-hmm. And then I get yelled at. Um, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's a it's a matter of. Um, it's a matter of don't start splitting things up. So don't start don't 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 start splitting up this this concept that we've all barely got our collective heads around and starting to starting to make it more complicated. Now I've I've done a a, a terrible job of uh, trying to explain that in layperson's terms. And trust me, like statistical communication is a separate skill in and of itself. Right. Um, but the point the point being, there's absolutely no guarantee that people who are doing even extremely complicated scientific work, unless they have the requisite skills in understanding how quantitative measurement works, uh, or unless they're working with a statistician who is particularly good, um, if they're using anything more complicated than really simple observations, it's likely they don't fully understand what they're actually reporting. So we have this really odd situation where... Research requires measurement. Uh, measurement requires quantitative factors. Quantitative factors require comparison. Comparisons require statistics. Um, and statistics require a statistician, which the vast majority of us don't have. Uh, most people have to be their own statistician. Um, this is a situation that's mm-hmm. improving, uh, but there's still an awful lot of statistically problematic work. I, I have avoided it while being involved in some of it in my own actual research. I have tried to avoid it as much as humanly possible simply by talking like the vast majority of the time. If you know what you're looking for, mm-hmm. there are elements of complication that people add to statistics that don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. As if there, there was some idea that uh, if you add sophisticated approaches that you don't understand, what you do will be cooler than uh, simple approaches that you do understand. So in, in general, I like a measure of uh, something that's usually called effect size. And it makes much more sense to report, to me at mm. least, it makes much more sense to report effect size, which is basically just a measure of magnitude. It's a, a, a standardized statement of how different things are. So I look at statistical significance as chance, I guess, the randomness effect. So, you know, I try to teach people, it's kind of like this, imagine all the people in the world, right? How many people last night dreamt about their fathers? That's probably a pretty big number. And how many of those people dreamt that their father died last night? And then of those people, how many fathers did die? You know, so there's a, uh, there's, stuff's going to happen because there's so many of us and there's like this random chance that it's going to happen. Now, if we said, if you use my magic supplement, you're going to make your father die when you dream about it, then we would have to measure the the baseline. What is the average incidence of this? And is our population of people that, uh, that would be a part of this bigger group, but is our population of people that got this placebo versus uh, like actual dose or these people got this actual dose, did their fathers die more uh, often um, than the people that did not get this or got the placebo? And so, like, 
the statistical significance is showing, yes, it happened, and it happened to a degree that was so much greater than chance that we can attribute that effect to the thing that we did. Um, but that can be manipulated, I guess, is what you're saying. Is the idea of statistical significance isn't really that big of a barrier to get over. And more importantly, we should look at like what is the actual real effect of that. I guess one of the examples I use as well is uh, I've been re reaming on this with the flu stuff. We have a high-dose flu shot right now. And my personal approach is, is if your doctor wants you to get it, get it. If you want to get it, get it. But know that it's not recommended because while it produces a statistically significant effect, the number that's needed to be treated with that high-dose flu shot to, to change the outcome for somebody is very high. So the number needed to treat or the magnitude of the effect is very small. So we need 200 people to be treated or more in order to save one life or one hospitalization, you know, intensive care unit visit. So it's like the idea of statistical significance is just a barrier saying that, yes, we can attribute this effect potentially to the thing that we're studying, but there's more to it than that, whether or not that's something that's practical, I guess. Mm. Well, you, you started there and sort of, uh, you started there in basic, I think basic probability is a lot easier to understand than statistical significance. So right. Mm-hmm. An approach, an approach like that is 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 something that makes sense. I mean, a, a lot of the time, you you don't even really need to go there. It's a lot of the time we're talking about base rates and risks when mm -hmm. it comes to health, and knowing what the absolute risks are of something, uh, good or bad, is a lot of the time a much more usable piece of information than saying p equals <laughs> two e to the mm -hmm. minus four. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, what do I do with that? When you say, well, the risk has gone up in absolute terms, one and a half percent, which would be quite a large increase in a lot of risks, is a statement that makes some kind of sense. So, if you, you know, it's uh, the risk of something is uh, four in a hundred, and it goes up to five and a half in a hundred. That is something that you can immediately intuit. Um, the only problem with reporting that is that people confuse uh, relative and absolute risk in health reporting all the time. Mm -hmm. And I have a I have a funny Twitter account that uh, makes fun of makes fun of reporting on essentially animal studies that are misrepresented as human studies, which is just a, a peeve of mine. And it's a very <laughs> successful, funny Twitter account. But I'm getting to the point now. Where I mean, that's not my decision. Like the internet made that decision. I'm just saying what they told me. Um, a, fr a friend of mine uh, started an account that is doing exactly the same thing, just just pointing things out like that. But it's about relative versus absolute risks, and mm -hmm. a lot of the time, I think his is is a little bit more useful than mine, right. to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. um, so let's. I mean, I'll, I'll open it. I'll open it right now. It's called, yeah, it's called relatively it. risky. Yeah, it has. Uh, it has. It has fourteen. It has fourteen thousand followers on Twitter. That's. Uh, that's good. Here's. Here's a good thing. Look at this. Uh, this is from the Daily Mail, so you know it's quality science reporting. <laughs> rising. Rising number of children hospitalized by allergies in England. Um, and there's a. Oh, look at this. Number of children hospitalized by life threatening allergic reactions soars by 72% in five years. Oh, 72% in five years. The, that is the relative increase, mm -hmm. right? The absolute increase is 0.05% of children. So 72% sounds like an awful lot and makes a great headline, mm -hmm. but hospitalization allergies so obviously that was i mean that started off as like 0.03 percent and now has gone up to 0.05 percent or thereabouts i uh i i, I made that up mm -hmm. uh a tiny bit less than 0.03 it doesn't matter mm -hmm. um the point is like an extremely rare thing has become slightly more common because a lot of children have allergies and you you uh you bang them full of allergy medication and you try to forget about it right, right. so i mean Allergy medication is an absolute godsend for people who've got allergies. I mean, there's a whole world. Of, I have to. I volunteer at a cat shelter, and without antihistamines, my head would be a mess. Mm -hmm. I'd just be red, red, and crying forever. More so than my work already makes me. <laughs> so the idea that horrible allergies are common for everyone is implied by the seventy-two percent. Right. Mm, but 
the the change in the risk of 0.03% to 0.05% says, oh, are people changing the kind of barrier at which they hospitalize their kids? Are people becoming more aware? Right. So there's so many different things that can go into that. But the more important lesson for lay people is when you see these percentages, you have to stop and ask yourself that question. So are they comparing it this year versus last year and how those numbers have changed? What's the real absolute risk? What's the total risk to people? So yeah, so this thing can reduce your risk by 44%. But if if your risk is still insanely high and it goes from 95% to 92%, you really haven't changed the clinical picture much, but yeah. compared to the old percent, it looks like a big drop, you know? Here's another good one. Mm-hmm. Cannabis smokers may be two and a half times more likely to suffer a stroke. So mm. that's a relative risk increase of 150%. The absolute risk increase is 0.4%. <laughs> This one's truly amazing because Mm -hmm. this isn't even from a newspaper. This is from the actual press release that's on Science Alert. So there's a class of drugs you're probably familiar with called proton pump inhibitors, right? Of course, yep. Mm -hmm. They they suppress acid production in the stomach. They're incredibly common. A new study reveals the long-term use of the medicine can increase stomach cancer risks by almost 250%. The absolute risk increase is 0.004%. And that is so important. I think that Twitter uh, handle, can you shout that out again? Because I'm going to put that in the show notes, but we should let them know. Because I think this is something that I, I need to subscribe to. Okay. Well, uh, this is this is Gid's account. It's just, it's just called Just Says Risks. One word, all lowercase, at Just Says Risks. Mine is at Just Says In Mice. Just as in mice. Uh, you guys are too much. I, I, I tweet the words in mice in nine separate languages now. We've got it up to nine uh, after the uh, recent edition uh, of uh, Czech and Catalan, which I now know how to say in mice in. So uh, I get a lot of Spanish media news. I got a lot of uh, English language news, uh, some French. Um, uh, uh, yeah, all over the world. Some German. Here's a good one from the other day. This was very popular. Ketogenic diet helps tame flu virus in mice. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy, us nerds getting so much. Here good, we go. Oh, no, so many no. good, so many good laughs out of this bullstein that's out there. Yep, bacteria in the gut may alter aging process in mice. <laughs> high fructose and high fat diet damages liver mitochondria in mice. This is your Jeff Foxworthy moment. It really does take the sting out of a lot of because I mean when you construct a study that is in an animal model, a lot of the time you're not trying to make it realistic to human beings because you're trying to demonstrate a mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say we were doing a study to prove that sugar makes people fat, right? Now, that would be monstrously unethical to run because the easiest way to do it is to take a big bunch of really uh, heterogeneous people, a really large group of people, and then assign them randomly to different dietary levels of sugar, 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, right? So at some point in time, we got to, we got some guys living on Fanta and cotton candy, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, and we measure that for 16 weeks, 20 weeks, something like that. What have we done to the dude? Well, he's probably got the, the, uh, a whole forest of new dental cavities. It's mm-hmm. certainly not good for his, his blood sugar. I mean, that's a terrible diet. Any dietitian of any stripes would say, what the hell are you doing with your food, man? Yep. Sorely that's terrible. So that's, that's the equivalent of what a lot of animal studies are doing. They're trying to demonstrate a mechanism, and it means that they push like the, the dosages that uh, the the animals are actually eating to the extreme, to something that's not realistic because it's not designed to be uh, an exact replica. It's designed to show a relationship between the variables. Now, that's, not a, that's not a problem in and of itself, but you have to understand that it's not supposed to be a direct analog of people, even, even if it's the same kind of, uh, of the, the, like all the sort of physiochemistry of it is right, similar. Right, same, like a pig or an ape or Yeah, even if that's the case. I mm-hmm. mean, so some, some animal diets, when you say, oh, there's, there, was, there was one the other day that was on, um, uh, they, were, they were looking at something between uh, dietary fat levels, and they didn't control the protein levels. Mm-hmm. Didn't control the protein levels between the two different groups. Mm-hmm. 
um, in, a, in a study where it was pretty obvious that the protein level would be important because they're just trying to make a statement about the fat. And there's a hundred ways to skin this particular cat. And this is the, uh, this is the other reason I refer, refer you to my previous about how it's one line in an ongoing conversation. Right. Now, details like that, even, even people like me, I do this for money. People, people pay me to work on projects to find out whether or not stuff works. Like, meta science is literally part of my job. Mm-hmm. If I'm struggling with it, then I have absolutely no idea sometimes how you're supposed to pick up a newspaper and infer your own health information. Right. The truth is that, like, the, the best recommendations that you or any other healthcare professional are giving people are often really boring. They're so, I mean, they're they're safe. They're straightforward. I mean, they're supported by evidence. They make sense. There are things that you're supposed to do. You know, are vegetables good? Yes. Is exercise good? Yes. Is sitting on the couch drinking beer probably bad for you? What, inactivity and alcohol? Well, yeah, past a certain point, obviously. People have this perspective, oh, I've heard that. There There must be something else on the table. And then some charlatan comes along and says, "Ah, look, the only thing you got to you got to eat nothing but heritage pork and M and M's, and that's my favorite. That's advice. that's it. That's yeah, not not together. I mean, that they're not a monster. Um, <laughs> but so so in in this hole where the kind of conventional advice, which is perfectly correct and trustworthy, and supported by." Years and years and years and years of the best available evidence through just just the most torturous pile of investigative effort you can imagine. Um, that that loses its shine. I mean, people have this sort of desire for novelty. I mean, that doesn't make your doctor wrong. You know, it doesn't mean yeah. your pharmacist don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't mean that every RD or dietitian is wasting their time. They all essentially, for like 80, 90% of the stuff that they say is the same thing. I mean, I, I see this happening. This is a, a constrained world. Exactly the same thing happens in um, strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. You know, lifting weights, another component of a sort of healthy life, et cetera, et cetera. You take really good coaches. 90% of the stuff they're telling people is essentially the same. Right. Load management, form, the amount of time you spend, what you push, where you do it, like the right way to do the exercise. And then there's a few sort of idiosyncrasies that are things that they're playing with. Like the vast majority of really good people agree with each other. And when someone comes along, they're like, ah, oh, no, you're all, you've got to lift all your weights upside down. That's the, that's, that's the key. That's the, the difference. <laughs> that's worked for me in particular. It's all faff. The, it's not the truth's fault that the truth is boring. But there's an awful lot of money in novelty. Wonderful. I think that's like the best summary that we could do of the whole thing. So I'm not even going to ask you to summarize it. James, thank you for coming on. Thanks for discussing uh, research and trials and BS with us. And I hope to have further discussions with you in the future. I think you're a great guest. So thanks so much. Hey, my pleasure, man. Anytime. Nice talking to you. I think that's some great insight given by James or Dr. Heathers, however you want to refer to him. I think he's cool with all of it. The perspective shift is so crucial to be a successful consumer of science information. Think that our goal scientifically is to have, as James put it, a complete story, you know, reasonably constructed. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Some pieces still, though, can be missing, of course, because health science can't really ever be perfected. We can get close, but we can't get to perfect. A study, though, is like a single line of text, and that's it. It's just a line. It's not the story at all. And it can only fit into that story in some way. And we don't really know how it fits into the story. We have, we have no idea. Is it even relevant? Does it support the hero? Or is it the backstory of the villain? So when you see the newest, latest, greatest, published, whatever in the scientific media, remember that. Repeat it to yourself that this headline, study, whatever, it may be a smaller piece of a much larger story. And as James said, the boring advice that responsible practitioners give are simply the more complete stories. Building a story often takes a long time, and it's boring because we've heard it before ad nauseum. But I want you to embrace the boring. I think we're looking for the newest trend, but so many of my customers aren't doing the needed and proven work that is boring. And that's the only way we can live our best lives is to do the work that we know works. 
So thanks to Dr. James Heathers for coming on and having a conversation with us. The simplest way to get a hold of James or like just read more of his stuff and his great take on life and science is to go to jamesheathers.com, J-A-M-E-S-H-E-A-T-H-E-R-S.com. And it's all of those letters with an at symbol for Twitter. Uh, check out the show notes on woodstockvitamins.com slash podcast for all the awesome funny links that James has mentioned during the show. He's got a podcast too, and I would recommend you check it out. They've got almost 100 episodes now. It's the Hertz Podcast, and just make sure you listen to all my episodes first, and then you can go on over there. And that's it for today. Keep listening, keep learning, and be well.